Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today with Steve. Oh, hey, hey. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and review dude, Josh. Gobble, gobble, motherfucker. <laughs> That's like Josh's action movie, like right before he blows away the bad guy with the shotgun. Before I blow away the turkey. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, motherfucker. Oh, God. Uh. It's got to be one of those like late 80s action movies where it's a callback to earlier in the film. Like the hero got screwed at the beginning and the bad guy was like, haha, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. And at exactly. the end when he gets his revenge, he throws it back at him. <laughs> I'm sad this movie doesn't exist. Right. All right. So we're here to talk about Thanksgiving movies. Do they exist? That's my question. Do they? <laughs> Steve... I mean, what's going on with Thanksgiving movies? There's not that many. I consider this to be a Thanksgiving movie, which is why we're doing it now. It actually does come up in Google as a Thanksgiving movie, so I guess it is. <laughs> I, I The only other even remotely Thanksgiving movie I could actually think of was, was Dutch, which is a movie I'm not sure most of our listeners will even remember or be aware of. Dutch? I love these kind of movies that people don't talk about anymore. Exactly. I, I've talked about this on the podcast a lot. Movies that are forgotten in time, as I like to say. So, Steve... Educate the audience. What is Dutch? Dutch, Dutch was Ed O'Neill, better known as Al Bundy, at the height of his Married with Children fame. This movie came out like 1991, something like that. And uh, he, he played a wealthy blue-collar entrepreneur who was dating a woman from a very wealthy background. She's got a son who lives most of the year at a boarding school who she wants to have join the two of them for Thanksgiving dinner. And the uh, I can't remember the, his character's name in the movie anymore, but Al Bundy, for, for lack of a better name, gets sent to pick the kid up at boarding school. And uh, the kid is immediately unhappy that he's there and, and doesn't consider Al to be good enough for him or his mother and makes the entire trip home a nightmare. And they end up having to drive cross country to do it. And it involves a lot of uh, bonding <laughs> you know right it's a road trip movie yeah it is more or less a road trip movie absolutely road trip movies have a lot of room to be good yeah like I, when i think i don't know like comedies not even necessarily comedies but like good concepts for a movie uh, tend to involve road trips at, at least <laughs> if they're fairly light yeah absolutely mad max Fury road that's a good road trip movie. <laughs> is that a road trip movie? Yeah. I guess all... sort of. Yeah. Uh. The, the ultimate road trip movie for me is Dumb and Dumber, which is like one of the few Jim Carrey movies I think like ha- like maintains. Yeah, I agree with you. There's there's not much of his resume I can sit down and rewatch, but that one's amusing enough that if I'm in the right mood once every few years, I, I, I get into it. Yeah. Do you guys remember the movie Curly Sue? Vaguely, yeah. I, I think that took place, it was either Christmas or Thanksgiving. That might be another one. I don't remember. I mostly remember the cover of that, like, at Blockbuster, seeing that, like, kid, like, staring yeah. at you, like, she kind of has, like, the quizzical look on her face, like, one eyebrow raised, like, right. what you gonna do, bitch? Some I'm spunky little soon. kid. Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's, it's basically, the, yeah, you nailed it. That could have been the tagline of the movie. <laughs> yeah. That was very much the spirit of it. They they convey that very well in that image, that one image I saw. I, I don't remember anything about the movie. Uh. Josh. Thanksgiving. Do you oh, celebrate wait. it? Yeah. Uh, yes. 
<laughs> I guess so. When I when I'm able to make it back home, I celebrate. How do you do that? You have a turkey pot pie? Uh, <laughs> uh no. Usually I I just, you know, go to a cemetery and hang out with dead relatives because nobody wants to be with me. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, Josh, you can come celebrate Thanksgiving with us. Oh, nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so so have you seen Thanksgiving movies? Are you aware of any? Are any on your radar? All right, so I guess the the, the big classic one is uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Oh, I never think of that as being a Thanksgiving movie, but you're right. Yeah, but I, I've got two honorable mentions and then something I really want to get off my chest briefly. Uh, so honorable mentions, I, they're not really movies. The the Thanksgiving scene in the the San Raimi Spider-Man. Oh, my it's God. It's just really, really, really great. <laughs> so that, hold on, let me see if I can... Uh, accurately present what you're referring to here because I think I know which one it is. I think the Thanksgiving scene in Spider-Man is when Peter Parker and Aunt May and Mary Jane and Harry Osborn are all there but even Norman Osborn shows up and they're all kind of like having their dinner made by Aunt May and Norman Osborn is acting suspicious. Peter Parker's acting suspicious and like I remember at one point Norman reaches for the um, for the turkey and like Aunt May like slaps his hand and Norman looks at her like he's going to fucking rip her head off later. And then he licks his fingers very sexually. <laughs> and then Peter comes in casually. He's like, I had to beat an old lady with a stick to get these cranberries, you know? Oh, yes. Uh, okay, good. Yes. He's a bit of a scientist. <laughs> I'm a bit of a scientist myself. Another honorable mention is the Thanksgiving vignette. From Grindhouse, directed by Eli Roth, <laughs> I think is really fucking funny. Uh, but I, the movie I want to talk about briefly is something I've been requested to do on my channel over the years, and I just don't think I'm ever going to do it. And it's Thanks Killing. You, are uh, you boys familiar with this? I think you sent me a picture of the poster, Josh, at one point, and it was like, a crazy rabid turkey. <laughs> yeah, a cigar chomping, crazy rabid, axe wielding turkey that like dishes out quips. How does it have arms? <sighs> Corey, that's the least of your worries, man. Right? <laughs> there are so many. There are way more of these than you'd think, too. There's one called Night of the Lepus about giant killer rabbits that escape from a laboratory. Oh, yeah. There's, oh, uh, there's Bones is in that movie, right? Yes. Uh, J McCoy. I think that's I think that's right. For yeah. uh, DeForest Kelly, yes, he's in that movie. And what? there's another one I can't remember the name of now about an an alien llama that lands on Earth and just starts mass murdering people. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. What but the yeah. shit? <laughs> right. Every now and then, someone on Instagram, and I love you all that follow our Instagram and message me especially. But every now and then, someone will message me. And ask us to review one of those types of movies. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I ain't yeah. watching that shit, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's the exact reaction I have, Corey. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You right. know, people understand we got to sit through this shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. I'd rather talk about movies I'm interested in first. And then maybe we'll double back. I don't even get to do that. I'm okay with movies I hate, but I have to like know that I hate it. Right, yeah. the, the amount of crap we've sat through for this podcast, I'm still angry about that dumb White House movie. White House down? Yeah, that movie's terrible. Man, rest in peace, Alan, but yeah, that was his 
That's true. Yeah. I'm going to give him another ration of shit about that. At his gravesite? Because remember, he died in Miami. That's canon to this podcast. (laughs) He did. You got to follow the lore. Oh, my God. We have talked about movies of this type, like, I don't know, five times. But in the 90s, Steve, there was a thing where classic TV sitcoms from the 50s, 60s, and 70s were remade with the perspective of the 90s. And the Addams Family... I'm pretty sure it was the first one in 1991. Now, I yeah. could be wrong, but that was at least the first one that made it. That fucking made a huge box office return. That yeah. first Adams Family movie made $190 million. It was a success. It was a smash success. And so studios were just made. like, this is the way to do it. <laughs> I mean, do you like these movies, though? Like, this week... Within the last seven days, I watched both Brady Bunch movies. Holy shit, I just thought that popped into my head. I don't know if that holds up, does it? It's all right. Yeah. I don't hate it. I was going to say, those are the only two other ones I can think of that I don't hate. Like, they're they're not my favorites, but yeah, they're not, they're not that bad. They were clever. They're, and, you know, uh, oh, God damn, I always mess his name up. Christopher McKeon, McKinnon, the guy that was also in Spinal Tap. Plays the the, oh, the neighbor, yeah. the real estate agent. I love that dude. Yeah, he's fantastic. Those movies, those movies are not they're not terrible. I don't like them like I like the Adams Family movies, but those are the only other ones I can think of that I find tolerable. Because the only other ones I can think of are stuff like um, oh shit, wasn't with Tom Arnold, Mikhail's Navy, which is awful. Uh, Christopher Lloyd was in a, a big feature film adaptation of um, My Favorite Martian. In the late nineties, oh, that was really that awful. One. Right, was you, you should. You know, no one wants to think about these things. <laughs> um. Corey, I guess uh, Casper would kind of fall into this category a little bit too, right? Somewhat, yeah. Somewhat, yeah, I guess right? you could. I'll, I'll, yeah, I mean, I guess because Casper started off being like an, I think Ar- the Archie Comics imprint originally printed Casper. It started off being that kind of thing. But you're right; it was a cartoon. The, the, the Scooby Doo movies with Matthew Lillard were not badly made, but I was too old for them at the point they came out. I think if... The, oh, yeah, that it, was way later. Yeah. You know, if I'd been a kid when those were new, I might have liked them, but yeah. Another one of this type, though, was Beverly Hillbillies. So that's one that's kind of forgotten about. That's true. Oh, that one, yeah. that one wasn't bad. I when At the point that movie, what was that, 93 or so? 94? Somewhere. Somewhere, I, yeah. I would have been 10 or 11. I had... I had one of the biggest crushes of my whole life on Erica Alenek, so I would just watch that movie on repeat because of her. But uh sounds like me as a little kid with this movie for oh, Christina Ricci. Yeah, absolutely. Which I've mentioned before. She was like my crush growing up. Right. I, I think I mentioned that in the last podcast we did. <laughs> right. Yeah, she was definitely one of those. Absolutely. Two Christina Ricci movies back to back coincidence. Right. Yeah, man. I mean, we should do more of her movies. I like a lot of her movies. Josh, we did that Casper movie a while back, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sorry was. I missed that one. I really like that one. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it was a fun movie. We had a good time. Yeah. One of the movies of this type that I do think qualifies that sucks is The Flintstones. Oh, now, yeah. Of course, we've, we have a full episode on that, giving our various viewpoints. Steve doesn't hate it quite as much as I do, but yeah. it was meant to be like a sitcom. Yeah. Right. Because it had the laugh track and it was very, very much structured that way. It was animated. Right. And like, I think it was intended to be like a 2D fashion, like they were on a set. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. And there was a an animated crossover TV movie where the Jetsons meet the Flintstones. I was about to admit, I don't think the, the Flintstones cartoon nor the Jetsons hold up at all. Like the, it's rock puns. 
I fucking get it. Yeah. I'm not into it, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the Flintstones, I was never big on any of the Jetsons. I don't know why. There's something about like the world of the Jetsons I still kind of like. I like that 50s, 60s retro futurism type vibe. But you're you're not wrong, though. I, I agree with you about the content. They've been talking for years on and off about doing a Jetsons movie. It's never really happened. I think there was more talk about it. Oh, I it. wonder why. There's right? not much to fucking work with. Right? There was sort of. They did release it in theaters. It wasn't a TV movie. There was a Jetsons animated feature film, so to speak, that was out in theater, like very late 80s, early 90s. And I liked it as a little kid, but I don't think I've seen it since I was 10 or 11. I have a feeling it wouldn't hold up. I mean, aside from Scooby-Doo, I think a lot of that Hanna-Barbera stuff just really doesn't hold up. No. I don't even like Scooby Doo, bro. No, I don't like any of it. <laughs> right, th- animation's kind of cool. It's but like like content wise, yeah, it's not aged well. No, what I, I yeah, unfortunately, I think that's true of a lot of it. Like I, I there's a part of me that still loves like GI Joe and the Transformers because I grew up with them, but. It got to be a point in my late teens where I suddenly came to the realization that those shows had been created by toy companies to sell action figures, and there was really nothing that special about them. Oh, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> there was no bigger fucking reality check than me going back and rewatching the old 80s G.I. Joe cartoon. Oh, God, <laughs> the yeah. The biggest reality check ever. Holy shit, that... Dude, those voice acting. The Transformers <laughs> did get the big animated movie, though, with Orson Welles and Leonard Nimoy, and that one was awesome. I Unicron, still love that. Baby. Unicron, Transformers got good voice acting. Like, Optimus Prime is still considered, like, iconic. You know, like, G.I. Yeah. Joe got the short end of the stick. And I'm pretty sure... The actor who did Lionel's voice on Thundercats was the <laughs> right was the father of an actress named something Kinney. Now I'm forgetting her whole name, but she played Weigel on Reno 911, and she's been on oh. a whole bunch of other stuff. That was her dad, and I'm pretty sure that he also did the voice for Optimus. But I might be wrong about that part. Oh wow! I know what you mean though, Steve, because I I don't think if I went back and rewatched Biker Mice from Mars, right, that it's gonna have. It's going to generate the same feeling that it did for me as a kid. No, there are some weird exceptions for me. You guys might disagree. There are some weird exceptions for me, like like the the stuff that was on Liquid Television, MTV, Aeon Flux, and the Head and the Max. They're goofy. They're weird. They're very products of the time, but I like those still. Beavis and Butthead was great. Even some of the sort of quasi-kids cartoons, like Ren and Stimpy, not the reboot Ren and Stimpy from TBS, like the original Ren TNT. and Stimpy. TNT, that's what it was. The, the the original Ren and Stimpy was awesome. And Rocco, Rocco's Modern Life, that show was great. Oh, dude, I love Rocco's Modern Life. Right? I uh. liked old sitcoms like this, though, when I was a kid in the 90s, because I watched a lot of Nick at Night. And oh, yeah. Another thing I've talked about on this podcast. But I didn't really like Adam's Family. I liked the Munsters. Now, where I came from, my position was it was kind of a one or the other thing, right? And, and it wasn't necessarily true, but that's kind of my mind frame. No, in fact, before the first one got made, before the first Adams Family feature got made, this producer dude, Scott Rudin, I think who we've talked about before, a big producer, he, very late 80s, tried pitching an Adams Family film to 20th Century Fox, and they were interested, and they almost went forward with it, barring some issues, but they were initially concerned that this property didn't have the recognition that the Munsters did because the Munsters had had been in syndic- much more widely syndicated and was more popular. And th- there was initially, I think, um, I've heard a moment where they were like, maybe we should do the Munsters instead. Well, fortunately, Rob Zombie is going to be bringing us the Munsters, Steve. Yes, the man that did oh. such a great job remaking the Halloween movie. <laughs> is, is this true? <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, this is absolutely true. There were set photos published in uh, Entertainment Weekly a couple weeks ago. Oh, oh horror man. news that Josh doesn't know about. Right. Josh, what's going oh, on? Well, calling the monsters horror is pretty borderline, but yeah. Well, I don't follow Rob Zombie at all. I fucking disdain his movies. Uh, aside from Devil's Rejects, I think that one's like lightning in a bottle for real. Dude, I'm a stand for House of a Thousand Corpses. Dude, I'm about that movie. I think that movie's so fucking legit. Uh, well, I, I've got mixed feelings. We should pot on it. I've got mixed feelings on House of a Thousand Corpses, but Devil's Rejects, I think, is genuinely good. Everything else this man has made is absolute shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the very, very first concert I ever went to as a teenager was a Rob Zombie show, and I, oh. I, I will say the concert itself was really entertaining. That, that's that's the most I can really say about it, but the, con- the performance was really entertaining. Although I think I was like 14 or 15. So, well, the last like 10 minutes of House of a Thousand Corpses feels like a giant fucking concert. Right. (laughs) Oh, so Adam's family values. Adam's family values. Steve, (laughs) how the hell did this movie get made? If you even know. Yeah, not much. Really almost nothing. So I was saying a moment ago, very late 80s, this producer, Scott Rudin, pitched an Adam's family movie to 20th Century Fox. There was a little bit of debate, apparently, whether they should do it or go try to get the monsters instead, but they decided they were interested. They liked it. The original idea, I don't know, people may not know, The Addams Family didn't originate as a TV show. It originated as a sort of a comic. Comics so this book. is a comic book movie. It kind of is. Yeah, I mean, they're not calling the original Addams Family stuff comic. I don't mean this is a knock to comics. It almost doesn't feel like the right term. It's a comic strip. Yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, so that's that's where it had come from originally. And I think Rudin's idea when he went to Fox was that they wanted to do something more closely based on the, the comic strip. And um, I, where they ended up was sort of a halfway in between. Anyway, Fox was interested, but at the time... Orion Studios owned like 80% of the rights associated with Adam's family, and the other remaining percentage was owned by the widow of the guy who'd created the characters to begin with. And Orion didn't want to get involved with the movie because at the time they were trying to reboot the TV series, and the widow, I guess, was not initially on board. And it went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and Fox eventually said, we're not even interested anymore, see you later. And then for whatever reason, I don't know why or how this really happened, but that widow decided to sell her portion of the rights to Orion. And once Orion had the whole package in-house, they suddenly went back to Rudin's company and said, actually, we would like to do an Adams Family movie. And um, Orion didn't actually produce the film. Paramount and Scott Rudin's company produced it together. They co-produced it. And then Orion got the international distribution rights as part of the package. And then they, they went ahead and they made the first one. And the first one turned out to be really successful. It was actually a really arduous production. We don't need to get into it for this one. But it, a lot of different stuff happened. Like people got sick multiple times. There were emergencies. But the production got shut down for weeks at a time. And then it came back. And Alec Baldwin shot someone. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, they made it and it did really well. And I, I, I basically this is all to say the only thing I really know about this film in terms of the background of how it got made was that the first one did so well they decided to green light this one and it was it was almost immediate Christina Ricci didn't have even have time to do anything else this was literally the next thing she did after the first one so so yeah very very interesting nice I did forget to mention when they got to the 
the point where they were setting up production of the first one, the first director they offered it to was Tim Burton. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. And he ended up declining it not because of disinterest, but because his the shooting schedule for Batman Returns conflicted and he couldn't couldn't take it. Hmm. And years later, like in the last 20 years, Burton ended up doing a very uh, lukewarm received film uh, adaptation of another horror TV show called Dark Shadows. Didn't turn out that great. Hmm. And had Johnny Depp in it. Surprise, surprise. But um, <laughs> I avoided it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I always kind of wondered how much different I don't think it would have been a lot different this is actually a sort of Burton-esque film anyway but I I, have a, I was kind of wondered how much different it would have been if Burton had done it Sonnenfeld um, had been a director of photography a cinematographer and had never directed a movie before the first first Adams Family so it turned out to be sort of kismet I wonder if he was told to make it like as if Tim Burton had made it because there's definitely Burton vibes right Man, yeah, I would be very interested to see, like, a Burton cut of Adam's Family. Especially Burton at this point in his career. Maybe in an alternate universe where, you know, Kurt Russell is also Han Solo. <laughs> God, that I don't think would have worked. <laughs> what if he had an eye patch? Well, okay, yeah, you make him snake and I'll watch him in anything. <laughs> what about Escape from L.A.? <laughs> <sighs> I'll watch it. What it's, about it's Ghost a, of Mars? Oh, no, no eye patch. Captain Ron. Ooh, that is an eye patch Kurt Russell movie, isn't it? All right. Fuck, I got to sit through Captain Ron now. Escape from New York is vastly superior, but Escape from LA has enough enough camp factor for it. I'll watch it. The b-ball scene? The b-ball scene. Surfing scene? Uh, the surfing scene is one of the worst, best parts of that movie. <laughs> A scene so good, they borrowed it and die another day. <laughs> yeah. Another great movie. I mean, the infamous can scene, right? Oh, when, when the can hits the ground, draw. <laughs> Snake's draw. so cool. <laughs> Well, Josh, let's get into the movie itself. Adam's Family Values, of course, a sequel to The Adam's Family. How does this movie start off? Well, uh, it opens with everybody just casually just hanging out in a family manner. Pugsley and Wednesday and the granny are burying the cat for some reason. Fester's up on the roof howling. Fester's up on the roof howling. Gomez is uh, arm wrestling thing. And Morticia... It just randomly just decides now's the time to have a baby, like right now. Gomez. Caramia. Marvelous news. I'm going to have a baby. Right now. Lurch is playing the Adams Family theme on an organ, on a little oh, mezzanine. Oh, yeah. I didn't catch that. Is it an organ? It's a, it's a, like a mini. There's a specific name that I can never remember, but it is a type of mini organ. Yeah, harpsichord. It, no, harpsichords are more like pianos. Okay. Yeah, it was just kind of a nice touch. And I, I, how the hell, how the hell does this thing have enough leverage to arm wrestle? I know, right? It doesn't matter. It's so great. Where's that coming from? What was thing like in the show? It was just like a hand that was in a box, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because they always had to shoot it from above with somebody's hand up the box. They didn't have the ability to remove somebody's body back then. So, right. yeah. Like, yeah, that's great. Growing up, I've never noticed this, but now, because I haven't seen this movie in like 20 plus years. So going back and watching it with a semi, like, understanding of how film works and everything i never noticed morticia's william william shatner eye lighting 
It's mm. it's like constantly following her throughout the movie, and it's it was the gift that kept kept on giving. I it's laughed fantastic. every fucking time. Right, they always give her that brow shadow, and they had her. I guess they couldn't get the effect they wanted with makeup. In order to give her more of a sort of cat eye effect, she was wearing this rig that went around the back of her head and connected to her temples to pull her eyelids up. And apparently it was really uncomfortable, and she oh. wore it through through both productions. But oh. yeah. Well, one extra thing there. When they're out in the in the graveyard, Wednesday Pugsley and Grandmama are burying a live cat. It yeah. moves around inside the box and meows. Well, they're talking about it like as if it's a funeral, like they're like yeah. burying a dead cat, and then you hear it meow, and Wednesday gets annoyed, like, shut <laughs> up. Yeah, she tells it, just shut up. <laughs> yeah. Come, Sorrow. We welcome thee. Let us join in grief, rejoice in despair, and honor the fortunate dead. Dearly beloved. And then, but yeah, and then Morticia, this is this is actually, I love everything up to Morticia's moment. Not that I don't love Angelica Houston, because I do, but that that Morticia moment is my least favorite mo- moment in the whole movie, because she's just like, oh, by the way, remember that baby I'm pregnant with? I'm giving birth right now. It's like, well, I don't know, you could have found another way to do that, but all right. Yeah, it's, it's a minor speed bump, I think, and an right. otherwise pretty good movie. No, it's a great movie. Yeah. It is interesting the way Morticia looks, because... She's almost like indistinguishable from her in anything else. Like she, mm. she doesn't normally look like Morticia in this movie. Angelica Houston, I mean, right? Definitely different from Captain EO, right? Vast <laughs> departure from that. You remember Captain EO, Steve? I love Captain EO. <laughs> God, I every time we were in the park, I had to go on Captain EO. Oh, me too, bro. It was a Francis Ford Coppola movie. <laughs> it was. I mean, God. I love Michael Jackson and that shit. Right. You guys, we got to get more respect. <laughs> anyway, yeah, you're right, Josh. Her lighting is pretty cool. She's very, she stands out from everyone else based on the way she's lit. She's super like, she's cool as a fucking cucumber no matter what's going on, including having a baby. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Nurse, how close are the contractions? Every 15 seconds, doctor. Are you in unbearable pain? Is it inhuman? My darling, is it torture? We. She's such yeah. a good actress. I love how they ask her if she wants some kind of like what um, anesthesia. Anesthesia, anesthesia. Yeah. and she's like, no, but ask the children. Yeah, do ask the kids. <laughs> ask the <laughs> that's great. I love it. She's so good. I mean, all of them are. I think that's part of what makes this movie. Like every single one of those parts was was well cast, and the leads are all really good actors. Oh, really and, good. I mean, Raul Julia's abilities, unfortunately, didn't do much for, for Bison, but still. Oh, my God. Man, <laughs> I was totally going to say, did any of you guys get that unshakable feeling that Raul Julia would just absolutely kill it as in Bison and Street Fighter? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I didn't. Of course. <laughs> I remember playing that game and thinking, man. If only Raul Julia would play this character. <laughs> this like five foot six inch tall Thai dude. <laughs> Definitely reminds me of Raul Julia. <laughs> like, uh. Whatever. He's a fucking gift. 
Raul he Julia is, is oh, a treasure. God. God, yeah, he was great in this. Uh, often people will say, you know, X actor was born to play this part. Uh, dude, Raul Julia was born to play Gomez Adams. He just absolutely fucking kills it in this performance. That's, I think that is said, that can be said about everyone in this cast. Yeah. Pretty yeah, much. Yeah, they were all yeah. perfect. Pugsley's replaceable, but everyone else. <laughs> you know, I, he was, he was really like perfectly Pugsley. fine for that. Yeah, he was a good little actor. It's so funny, though. He's like the one weird standout in that cast that had like no other career aside from being in these two Adams Family movies. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just the way Pugsley's written. Yeah. He doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue of what he does. It's kind of, you know... He wore just work it. Whatever. <laughs> right. The casting department did its job well for this film. Absolutely. That's the only thing I think would have been... Like, if Burton had done this, 99% chance he would have cast Depp as uh, Gomez. And I'm not even saying it necessarily would have been bad. I think if, if you were going to get anyone except Julia, Depp is probably one of the few actors... That, that might have been an okay alternative, but it, it's just one of those cases where I can't really, can't really imagine anyone else doing it. Although I am going to say, you know what I'm going to say? Of course. My favorite actor could have done it. Right. But Eddie yeah. Murphy. Absolutely. Eddie Murphy would have been perfect. <laughs> <laughs> For those that don't listen to every episode, Steve uh, is talking about Daniel Day-Lewis. Absolutely. Uh, that's who I thought you were talking about, but I couldn't help but think Shia LaBeouf. Oh, you know, the beef is really up there for me, but not not quite on the same level as Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis should have played Hawkeye in The Avengers. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've always said I've always said that dude could get cast to play anything that you can physically make him. He would do the best possible job with. But, you know, I, I, even I will concede that would have been pretty bad casting. <laughs> I want to see Marvel cast Daniel Day-Lewis in, like, one of those super unforgettable villain roles in the MCU and just completely waste him, like uh, <sighs> like Malachi or Malakath in uh, right. Thor the Dark Thor World. Thor the Dark World, yeah, yeah. the Dark Elf. <laughs> I'm surprised you remember that character's name. No one remembers Malakath. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he could have been uh, Morbius instead of Jared Leto. The Living Vampire? Yeah. Yeah, have you seen that trailer? I have. Way too much of a meteor part, <laughs> you know? Right. We need to cast him as Jamie Foxx's Electro replacement. <laughs> oh my God, I, I that would have been so much better. I, I'm There's no way I'm paying to see that in a theater, bringing back all the worst parts of those movies. Well, I, I will watch it if, in fact, Willem Dafoe is, is back. You guys are talking about the new Spider-Man? Yeah. Oh, I'm on board. I'm ready for that. Oh, if Willem Dafoe really is back, oh god, I'm I'm hook line and sink. I'm in. I mean, the the campiness would be would be cool. I I did kind of like Molina's Doc Ock, and I know I he's going to be back. But I didn't realize how nostalgic I was until I watched the trailer. I was like, oh shit. Well, I, I mean, he was clearly the best implemented villain of I think pretty much all of them. The, the right writing wise, Mysterio was not great, but I do feel. The few scenes where they had him in the quote-unquote comic book costume where he had the dome on his head, and I know it was an illusion, but still, the, that looked cool. I thought I thought the way they pulled off the, the outfit was, was nice, but the rest of it— You sully the memory of Topher Grace's performance. He's rolling in his Ugh. grave. His career is rolling in its grave right now. Topher Grace. God, that was bad. God, that was bad. He goes into church and asks God to kill Peter Parker? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like— I'm, I'm never going to get over it. I mean, Tom, the, the Venom movies are not good in my opinion, but Tom Hardy at least is a good actor. I like Hardy. Man. <laughs> 
Well, to get things back on track, and yeah. I do love getting sidetracked. Believe me, I do. <laughs> Legitimately. Oh, I haven't even mentioned Job of the Hutt yet. Pubert, the baby, baby Adams is born. Dude, so they're in the hospital. This is a great one. They're in the hospital on Wednesday. Pugsley and Grandma Ma are in the waiting room, and there's some other little girl who's there waiting for her parents, and she's explaining to Wednesday and Pugsley how babies come. And she's got this whole involved story about a stork bringing a diamond and leaving it in a cabbage patch, and blah blah blah. And then mommy kissed daddy, and the angel told the stork, and the stork flew down from heaven and left a diamond under a leaf in the cabbage patch. And the diamond turned into a baby. Our parents are having a baby too. They had sex. Yeah, our parents had sex. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> it's it's great. <laughs> oh, it's really a great moment. I love how the baby is a perfect addition to the Adams tribe. It's already yes. got the Gomez fucking stash. Yeah, he's already got like hair parted, like slicked like Gomez, and the little mustache. When Wednesday and Pugsley first ask if it's a boy or a girl, Gomez will only say it's an Adams, and it just that's perfect. Right. It's a boy. It's a girl. Gomez. What news, father? What is it? It's an Adams. That's perfect, right? Dude, uh, uh, just another great moment is when Gomez, like, later in the film, he just casually makes a mixed drink and puts it in the baby bottle. <laughs> that baby's gonna hang over. He makes him a drink with, like, vodka, Worcestershire sauce, and an egg. It's so good. He puts it in the bottle. The baby's, like, wearing sunglasses from the night before. Yeah, it's hungover oh. as fuck. The details in this movie, speaking of the details, they get little Pubert home. You actually haven't heard his name yet. There's another moment with the name we'll talk about when we get there. But they get little Pubert home and and, uh, Gomez tells Morticia he's got a surprise for her. He takes her up to this room he's had made up as Pubert's nursery. And you look around the nursery and like on one wall, there's a depiction of sharks eating each other. And there's like all this horrifying stuff painted on the wall and there's a mobile hanging above the baby's crib. It's made out of uh, chains and it's got uh, kitchen knives knives hanging, (laughs) butcher's knives hanging from it. (laughs) It's so perfect. It suits the Adams. It really does. Yeah. They put this like horrifying fucking monster in front of his, like as a baby toy. The teddy bear, the teddy bear they give him's got this like stretched demon's face. It's awful. (laughs) It looks like the type of thing you'd normally use to scare a kid. It looks like Krampus. Like you tell the kid, if you don't behave yourself, this thing's going to come for you. (laughs) Oh God. What I like is when Pugsley and Wednesday are just like trying to off the baby. They're like, yes. fuck this baby, we're gonna kill it. I love the the hype before all of this shit is with like uh Wednesday and Pugsley are on the stairs, they're like, Well obviously that means one of us has to die. Right. Well they don't they only need one boy. <laughs> My favorite part about that particular scene with that conversation is that the two of them are on the lower staircase sawing away at the banisters. <laughs> and there's kind of a moment where you'd think to yourself, I wonder what they're up to doing this and the reality is they weren't up it wasn't part of any larger plan they were just doing it to do it it's just that they're destroying the bar- the banisters because why not yeah like, they're just destructive generally right and there's a moment where they drag pubert in on a little wheeled cart into a, in a room in the attic where they've got a baby-sized guillotine set up 
and they've got Pubert wearing an outfit that looks like Marie Antoinette being taken. In the- <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's it so is good. The, the level of detail in some of these scenes is just fantastic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this movie is all about the little details, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. You have betrayed the people of France. You are evil incarnate. How do you plead? Guilty. Guilty. By our own admission, the sentence is death. Executioner, place her on the block. It is, yeah, there's a lot of visual gags. And and even though it's simple, I like it when they just take the baby to the roof and they're just like, let's drop this fucker off of the roof. (laughs) (laughs) It just so happens, like, Gomez just happens to be at the window. It's classic wacky hijinks. Not terribly done like Baby's Day Out, right? No, yeah. And the kids are doing it at night. They get up on the rooftop at night and they drop it. And Morticia and and Gomez are in their bedroom having a conversation when when Gomez catches the baby from the window. But there's a moment, I think it's in there, where they flash over to Fester in his bedroom talking about these little details. Fester is laying in bed reading a book called Strange Men and the Women Who Avoid Them. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's good. I didn't notice that. Right? I didn't notice that either. And, like, I had to pause it. I'm like, wait a second. I actually had not noticed this in multiple viewings before this viewing. I paused it. I'm like, wait, what? that book's got a title on it. What is it? And it says that, yeah, the, the strange men and the women who avoid them by Dr. Rachel Ferrone. That's great. Right? And they had a cover made up. If you look at the back cover, you can see there's text on it, but it's too blurry to read. I really wish I could get a hold of that prop cover just to know what it said. There's a few prop items in this movie I'd like to have. I'll yeah. talk about one specifically in a little bit. So the kids are kind of like rivaling with the baby that we talked about. And that calls back to the way Gomez and Fester used to be when they were kids, yeah. which I think is a really great scene. They have a really great dynamic in both movies. They do. Christopher Lloyd plays Fester. He's so good. So good. His transformation into this character is amazing. He's, he was in so many movies that I liked growing up, oh, and yeah. he, he transformed himself to such a great degree. Of course, Back to the Future is probably what he's most known for, but Steve, we recently watched Roger, Roger Rabbit, Rabbit. Yeah. And he's amazing in that. In that yeah, the th- between Roger Rabbit, the three Back to the Future films, and the two Adams Family movies, absolutely. I probably had something with him in it on like like 10 days out of any given year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely a staple for, uh, for kids growing up in the 80s and 90s. Right. As we were. He's great. I like when him and Gomez are just talking about the things they used to do to each other. Right. And it kind oh, of like... that's a great scene. <laughs> My absolute favorite between the two of them, though, was in the first one. There's that scene when, when, when he's still trying to pull the scam. He's only recently back with the family, and Gomez takes him on the little, like, railway cart to, to the treasury room or whatever it is. That part is so cool. Even now, I love that. One of my favorite parts as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. I always wanted, like, oh, dude, I wish I could make that in real life. Gomez totally throws Fester against the wall and throws all those knives. It's so funny. So funny. Yeah, it's just like one of their classic like things. It seems like Gomez always has like the upper hand on Fester when they like wrestle and stuff. Like he always kicks his ass. They have that whole conversation about what they used to do to each other. And at one point, Fester admits that that he... He opened his brain up. He drugged Gomez one night while he was sleeping and then opened his skull and took his brains out. (laughs) That's the best moment. Gomez goes, you did? And he just laughs. (laughs) Just simply rivalry. Gomez... Do you remember what we were like? I hated you. I despised you. I choked him. 
till he lost consciousness and had to be put on a respirator. I tied him to a tree and pulled out four of his permanent teeth. When he was asleep, I opened his skull and removed his brains. You did? <laughs> <laughs> a brother! Uh, they're so good, man. Red Julia, again, a gift. He really is. Yes. So Morticia decides that they should get a nanny so that, you know, she can, uh, I guess, pursue the dark forces of hell. Or she shit. says, she specifically <laughs> says she wants more time to seek out dark voice forces and join their hellish crusade. Yeah. She's one of my favorite quotes in the whole movie. <laughs> so casually delivered. Right. Josh, what are some of the nannies we get? Holy shit. Uh, we get a hippie first, right? And it's the actress that played Miranda, I think, on Sex in the City. She's been a whole bunch of stuff. She was in Baby's Day Out. Was she? Uh, bring it back in full circle of Baby's Day Out. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, wants to teach him to prevent forest fires, to which they say prevent. They like <laughs> have a whole bunch of matches lit. As your new nanny, I know that we're all concerned about the environment. So, this morning, let's discuss how to prevent forest fires. Prevent them. The next is, I think, the elderly black nanny who wants to know where the baby is. Yeah, the no-nonsense lady. <laughs> where is that baby? All right, children. I've had it up to here. Now you just answer one simple question. Where is that baby? Which part? <laughs> no, which part? Which part? Which part? <laughs> and then it's the, the puppet lady, right? Oh, yeah. Hello, kiddies. I'm Polly the Puppet. What shall we do today? I know. Let's all clean our rooms. Hello, Polly. I'll clean my room in exchange for your immortal soul. Absolutely love the way they get the, the devil puppet to, like, rub its hands together. <laughs> oh, it's so, so cool. Little details <laughs> like that are awesome. Oh, it's true. But of course, none of those nannies last. We get the real nanny. We get Debbie Jelinski, played by Joan Cusack. Mm -hmm. Hi, hi, I'm Debbie Jelinski from the agency. The agency? But they claim no one else was available. They suggested a Doberman. Surprise! I've been out of town. Are you the mom? I am Mrs. Adams. I love your dress. It's so tight. Thank you. Gomez. I believe we may have a new nanny. Mr. Linsky. Deb. Isn't he a lady killer? Acquitted. I can show you all my references so you know I'm not a homicidal maniac. <laughs> of course you're not. You're too young. <laughs> what do you think of her, Steve? She was great for this part. She's really great for this part. She, she plays these kinds of secondary parts well. I think Joan Cusack's underrated. I do, too. Absolutely. And um, you don't really know when she first arrives what she's up to. There's, there's a moment I'm, I want to make mention of when, when you find out. But she gets there, she gets introduced to the family, and she's feigning like she loves it there, and she thinks the baby's so cute, and blah, blah, blah. And this is when you find out that the baby's name is Pubert, because she asks Gomez and Morticia what the baby's name is, and the two of them tell Debbie 
that they were having difficulty figuring it out and that they considered names including Lucifer, um, <laughs> Benito for Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy. They considered Mao for Mao Zedong, the founder of the Chinese Communist Party. And they ended up naming him Pubert because they felt that that was a name a kid could live with. Sure is, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, so so Debbie comes in acting like she's this perfect addition to the family and that she'll, she'll be there to... Um, to, to really help them through this situation. The thing about Debbie is I think she fits in with this family. She does. Like, she actually clicks with them. If yeah. she would just accept it, it would kind of work. I mean, she doesn't have to marry Fester. Obviously, he's gross and, <gasps> un, like, not attractive at all. It's the moment where they they show the engagement ring and she pulls up the shovel and the way the lightning hits. I'm like, she absolutely fits in with his family. Right. That's a very, like, Adam's family moment, They right? even yes. end up sort of honoring her as a member of the family even after everything when it ends. I, I was telling my girlfriend as we were watching it, I was like, if she was genuine about this, like, that, th- that would be, like, an honest way to their, like their hearts, their affections, you know, digging up their dead mother to get the engagement ring. Such an Adam's family move. Definitely. But Debbie is, uh, of course, not what she appears to be. We learn that on the bootleg version of Unsolved Mysteries, right? right. She's, she's laying in bed watching America's most disgusting unsolved crimes, which I think is great. Tonight on America's Most Disgusting Unsolved Crimes, we investigate the case of Ursula, Carmen, and Nadine. Three very different women with one thing in common. Murder! And they're all the same woman. She's known by the police as a black widow. She mates, and she kills. She investigates wealthy men finding the richest, loneliest bachelors, gaining their trust and their love. And finally, she marries them. Then, on the wedding night, she kills them. The deaths appear accidental, and after the funeral, she disappears, cash in hand. But the money never lasts, and soon the Black Widow is hungry again. Hungry for cash, hungry for love. The mistress of disguise, she has eluded the authorities for years. Who is she? And what seemingly innocent pose will she next assume? All we can say is... Bachelors, beware. Uh, we've, we've come across a couple of movies that have had their own discount unsolved mystery shows. Like, wasn't, wasn't Casper, didn't Casper have one uh, as well as like yeah. 13? Casper had like a, a bootleg hard copy. I yeah. Think. Uh, no, it was uh, the remake of House on Haunted Hill that yes. had the bootleg <laughs> yeah, unsolved mysteries. Yes. <laughs> And the show reveals that she's a black widow who assumes different identities, marries different men who are wealthy, and then kills them to take their money. And as we're learning this, they pan across a series of pictures that for some reason she has up. I don't know why she'd be displaying them, but she's got this, <laughs> this display of pictures of some of her alternate identities. And one of them, the last one they pan across is Kathy Lee Gifford, which I think is pretty funny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what, what does that mean, Steve, to people that aren't in the know? Kathy Lee Gifford is a 
talk show host. She hosted that, what's it called, show with uh, Regis Philbin for years. It was like some kind of morning talk show. Yeah, and she's, she was Regis well known and for, Kathy. Yeah, and she was well known for being married to a guy named Frank Gifford, who was a former, I think, football player and NFL commentator who had a really infamous affair behind her back. And uh, she, she's got a reputation for just being kind of, I think, difficult and loud. So, you know, it's just like, yeah, this is her too. And running sweatshops. Yeah, and running sweatshops to make her line of cheap shit clothing, you know. (laughs) Well, I love a lot of things about this movie, but kind of where it leads from here is like, Debbie is trying to get into the family to get Fester's money. As we learned in the last movie, the Adams come from old money, and they are super, super loaded. And yes. it's actually all festers. Everything belongs to him. The house, their money, everything. Which is the, the same plot as the first movie, if you think about it, from a different angle. Yeah, exactly. But in this angle, Debbie is going to marry Fester and take all the money. And try to kill him, of course, because that's kind of her thing. <laughs> to get rid of the kids who are suspicious of her, she gets the parents to send them to Camp Chippewa. Now this, to me, is what I think of when I think of the movie, the kids at camp. And it's a lot of fun, I think. What do you think, Josh? Well, uh, just going back briefly, it's a great moment when she's like going through all those files and like bonds and deeds. And she looks up and Wednesday's like trying to camouflage against the wall. Straight out of the movie toys. (laughs) That's so awesome. But yeah, they get sent to camp. I really like the, the fish out of water stuff where it's like, Pugsley and Wednesday in this completely like happy chipper environment it's, it's, makes for good comedy. Oh, Wednesday's at that very special age when a girl has only one thing on her mind. Boys. Homicide. Attention! Hey, listen up, everybody! I'm Gary Granger! And I'm Becky Martin Granger! We're the honors and directors here at Camp Chippewa, America's foremost facility for privileged young adults. And we're all here to learn, to grow, and to just plain have fun! Because that's what being privileged is all about! Well, Camp Chippewa is for privileged young adults. Yeah, there's so much here. Privileged white people. There's so much here to get to, even before you get to, because I want to talk about that too, but even before you get to that, the first person they encounter at this camp is this other little blonde girl, Amanda Buckman, played by an actress named Mercedes McNabb. She also had a cameo as a Girl Scout in the first Adams Family film. She runs up to them, and the first thing she asks is, is why are you dressed like that? And and when when Christina when Wednesday's like like what you know she's like like you're going to a funeral and uh, it gets really in their face about the entire thing, um, which is really weird. And Amanda's this prissy little character, spoiled, self-absorbed, thinks she's going to be an actress, and like makes makes Wednesday miserable through the remainder of her stay at the camp. Then you get introduced to the the owners slash directors. Gary Granger, who's Peter McNichol, and Becky Martin Granger, Christine Baranski, and the two of them, these two are the most abrasively faux-positive, fake-energetic bullshitters. They're obviously just greedy pricks, 
but they, they've got this whole false positivity superstar thing going. And he, he says that the camp, Camp Shippel is America's foremost facility for privileged young adults. And then Becky says everyone is there to learn, grow, and just plain have fun. And Gary feels the need to add, cause that's what being privileged is all about. So it's like, all right, so this is a sleepaway camp for spoiled, pampered rich kids, basically. It's, and it's yuppie camp. Yuppie camp, and you're building by, your parents. Run by two people who look like they just got out of a cult, or, have, <laughs> or they have like a side, like mid-level marketing business, like, you know, they, they run a pyramid scheme on the side, maybe. Right. <laughs> uh, so they do this, and then Gomez and Morticia exchange a look with each other when they see these people that is priceless. The, the, the whole moment is two seconds long and there's no dialogue, but the way Morticia looks at him is fantastic. I love it. There's a great moment where they're kind of like bragging about their kids and Gomez like grabs Pugsley and he's just like... Probation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's all perfect. And then Wednesday, Wednesday sees Joel and Joel's the other really fantastic camper here. Yeah, that's a, a young David Crumholtz who I like a lot. Right. I, yeah, I, I appreciate seeing him in everything. Full disclosure, I just in all of my notes I refer to him as Bernard because I know <laughs> as Bernard from the Santa Claus movie. Hey, a sport? <laughs> yeah, he yeah. was he was Bernard only a few years later. He was in a really great movie called uh, Slums of Beverly Hills with Natasha Leone and and some other people. Um, he had a, a medium-sized part in 10 Things I Hate About You, which is not a very good movie, but is kind of a late 90s classic. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Universe in Serenity. Oh, <laughs> right. yes. His parents are played by Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, and a comedian named Julie Halston. It's really good. The two of them are totally overbearing, especially the mother. The, the Joel character is this frail, asthmatic kid who's, who absolutely has got no interest in being at this camp. And, oh, uh, What's the word you're looking for, Steve? <laughs> uh, Nebishi? I don't know. <laughs> He's the Jewish kid. Yeah, right? <laughs> Mom, I don't, I don't think I like it here. Oh, will you stop already? Do you know how dirty you are? Already? Selma, please leave him alone. Oh, my God, that's more right here. Oh, stop it, Joel, please. Now stand up straight, please. This smile. is why he's sick all the time. Oh, Belle, don't store with me on that, This please. is it. You did this. This oh, is nothing you to do stop. with allergies. The but Jewish like kid the that most, is sick all the time that complains. Yeah, right. He's like the most stereotypical, like frail, overparented Jewish kid you could possibly, possibly get. I knew a lot of them growing up. Some of them might even be in my family. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, and talking about you know the little details and stuff that Josh was mentioning earlier. Uh, there's a moment not too long later. One of the first things all the campers do together, they get taken to a pier for introduction to swim or whatever you want to call it, and. Almost all the kids on both sides, they got the boys and the girls separated. Almost all the girls on kids on both sides are wearing the same swimsuit. All the girls, except Pugsley, have the same blue swimsuit on. I'm sorry, except Wednesday, have the same blue swimsuit on. Wednesday's wearing what looks like a 1920s era, like women's bathing suit. It looks even older than that, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> and it could, yeah, it could be Victorian era, really. It looks Victorian era. And, um, on the other side, the boys are all wearing the same trunks, except Pugsley, who's got something like a male version of what Wednesday has on. But the only exception, aside from the two of them, is Joel. If you look at the group of boys, Pugsley's wearing his thing, and Joel has got this pair of white and red striped swim trunks on. He's the only one other boy that's not wearing the same trunks. And it's just a nice little detail touch that, like, hey, here, you know, this kid's obviously the other different one. Well, yeah, another good visual detail that yeah. separates all these characters 
or that separates our oddball characters is that everyone else is blonde. It's true. Yeah. Except for the odd ones out, people that basically are assigned to play the Native Americans in the play. Right, that's true. Who aren't Aryan. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. All the non-Aryans. <laughs> Non-Aryans are going to play the... What is this camp? You know, like, what is going on here? What kind of camp are you running? <laughs> oh, God. And I th- well, going back to the swim trunks detail, I think that's... Also a nice little foreshadowing that he he's also going to fit in with the Adams family just perfectly. Exactly. Hey, how about a first little pair of life-saving buddies? Amanda, Wednesday? Is that your bathing suit? Is that your overbite? Now one of you will be the drowning victim, and the other one gets to be our lifesaver. I'll be the victim all your life. Wednesday Adams is amazing and she is basically like a counterculture icon at this point in like pop culture like how many memes do you see of her where people like look to her in admiration to the way she feels about society and people can like you know relate to that on a deep level i mean that that image of her drinking the poison when she first arrives to the camp and they all like are describing the fun things they do and she just like breaks out the poison and starts drinking it like i see that everywhere (laughs) <laughs> oh, dude, yeah. There's her reactions to, to things are just so fucking memeable. It's true. <laughs> She's great. But meanwhile, Fester is trying to woo Debbie, right? She is obviously the temptress in disguise, but, you know, Fester, being the dumbass that he is, is not aware of this. He asks her out to dinner and asks Morticia and Gomez to join them. And they go to this place that is quite fancy, and it looks like it's like a themed restaurant in a cave. It's actually pretty fucking cool. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, it's it's like I'm, there's a really famous restaurant in New York City called Tavern on the Green, and in one episode of Futurama, they knocked it off. They they made a, a faux version of it called Tavern in the Cave. Uh, Leela and Fry actually go have a, a nice dinner inside a cave. Okay. And uh, I, I think this might have been a nod to the same type of joke. I mean, this is years before Futurama, but I think that may have been what the reference was supposed to be. But either way, yeah, they find this restaurant that is somehow this like super high-end boutique restaurant. Most of the other diners there look like pretty normal people, but they're they're like inside of a cave. It's clearly like a very fancy place for sophisticated people, maybe to dress up a little bit in like yeah. kind of old-timey clothes. There's that one woman that looks super 20s that's smoking a cigarette and right. older. Yeah, it's very very old style, old school. It reminds me, there's a place downtown called the Edison that's not too dissimilar. It's very 1920s style. You get a lot of that that aesthetic when you're in there. Yes. Yeah. Josh, do you think Fester is a natural with the, with the ladies or what? I mean, he does vomit off screen. So you know he, lo- he really likes her. Uh, there's a great moment to just solidify how fucking awkward he is. Gomez and Morticia are having their extravagant dance number where Fester just taps uh, Debbie and he's got the fucking carrots uh, like up his nose, dude. And he's Christopher Lloyd's reaction. Like he doesn't stop smiling. He thinks it's the funniest thing. fucking thing. The greatest extension of that, I think is he, he does it for, he taps her on the shoulders so that she'll look. 
But then a few moments later, because she's transfixed watching Morticia and Gomez dance, she's obviously trying to make it clear to Fester that she wants to be doing that. And Fester takes the carrots out of his nose and is examining them. And when she looks back at him a second time, he realizes she's looking at him and puts the carrots back in his nose. He doubles down. <laughs> he doubles down and like, oh God, she's going to see I don't have them in. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is God. the best part of it. Like, that's the payoff to the joke, I think. Right. <laughs> He's such a fucking incel that, like, right. he doesn't know what to do. So he does one. that again. <laughs> Meanwhile, God, Morticia and Gomez are, are, like, I mean, this is also basically a meme, but they're kind of, like, relationship goals, right? Like, their love is, like, yeah. strong, and it's... I think it's counter to what was popular in sitcoms of that time yeah. in a big way. Because I think the joke in old sitcoms, a lot of it was like the husband and wife don't like each other. Right. And like the husband would make jokes like, take my wife, please take yeah, right. her. There's always shit like the that. Rodney Dangerfield bit, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, not exactly right. But Steve, what were some shows like that where like the husband didn't like the wife? Like, uh, Well, I mean, the classic is uh, Married with Children if you're, you know, an 80s, 90s person. But even uh, yeah. older. Or Yeah, I mean, you go back to like... Um, uh, what's that? Honeymooners? Honeymooners, there you go. Yeah, you know, yeah. to the moon, Alice. Yeah, there's a lot of those kinds of shit. Yeah. Joking about beating his wife. <laughs> right. Even like Fred and Ethel on I, I Love Lucy, where it like they kind of had that vibe yeah, too. Yeah, they had a little bit. And even Ricky and Lucy themselves to some degree. And I mean, it's sort of a knockoff, but Fred and, and Wilma on the Flintstones. Going back to Hanna-Barbera, yeah. Yeah. But they don't do that joke in this. They no. They actually like each other which is like refreshing and it's it's actually like nice there's like, also kind of yes. a vague inference through both films that they're related it's it's kind of weird but it's there what yeah what is this, the people under the stairs right yeah exactly <laughs> and there's, a, there's a couple of weird moments where the two of them talk about family as if they really do share the same family so yeah it, 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 you gotta look for it but it's definitely there here's a weird touch Gomez and Fester are looking at like an old like Playboy. It's not a Playboy, but it's like an old dirty magazine. Yeah. And the page folds down. It's the centerpiece. And they look at each other and they go, Mom. Yeah. That's one of those moments where it's like this family is super incestuous. Yeah. Very weird. <laughs> you have to keep the bloodline pure. Well, don't put a damper on their relationship. I think it's pretty good. I like their dance. You know, they do the tango a little bit. They think they lean into like some flamenco dancing toward the end. It's pretty cool. Right. There's a cute little moment where each of them make each other jealous. They dance even harder after that. I think it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's all in good fun, of course. Yes. So Debbie, after the dinner, she kind of like takes that opportunity to seduce Fester even further, confesses her love for him. She acts like he's like the fucking the Chad Adams. It's... <laughs> it's it's weird, but she she drops it quickly because like they get married like right after that they agree to get married. She says, "I'm a virgin. I've never been with another man." And he's like, right. "He's like, what's that? Well, oh, I'm one too." I don't even know what sex is. Here you are, a debonair man of the world. How I must bore you. Oh, <gasps> never, Fister. Before we go any further, I have a confession. Something I must tell you. I'm a virgin. You are? Yes. What's that? It, it's someone who's never experienced physical love. 
follow you everywhere. Store detectives. Oh, Fester, I always dreamed of meeting someone untouched, someone pure, someone just like you. You'll meet him. And and I dreamed that when I met him that we would wait until our wedding night to give ourselves to one another to Make the ultimate sacrifice. A goat? Until now, I thought it was impossible. But Fester Adams, I love you. You do. Please, be brutally honest. I have to know how you feel about me. I love you. I worship you. I'd do anything for you. I'd pay. Fester! Debbie! Biggest incel I've ever seen in a movie. He's basically a six-year-old, yeah. <laughs> so uh, they do get engaged. But at camp, the kids are like kind of like running into more shenanigans of like not fitting in. <laughs> do you remember how, like kind of like what they're up to, Steve? They eventually get sentenced to the Harmony Hut the first time. Yeah, there's one moment where the girls are telling ghost stories in their cabin and the Amanda character is trying to go Wednesday into participating. So Wednesday tells them this story that sounds very benign at first, but it then ends. Well, it is benign in a funny way, it, and then it ends with Wednesday implying that all the girls woke up the next morning to find that their nose jobs had been undone, and they were all horrified <laughs> by this. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember the nose job craze of the '90s? How it was like mentioned oh, in media all the time. God, yeah. I mean, I went to school with a lot of these girls. It was really weird. Sixteen to eighteen-year-old girls that were getting nose jobs as a birthday present. It's like. You don't even really know what your adult face is going to look like yet. Yeah. <laughs> I remember in yeah. the 90s, my dad paid for his girlfriend to get a nose job. At least she was an adult. Yeah. Like, but still, it was like a thing. Right. Nose jobs, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That was the plastic surgery fad. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that still happened, but like, it was. It seems like it was a fad at the time. No, it really was. It's very strange to, to like, it really was kind of the last gasp of a very old world type of misogyny in a way is like I gotta make sure this girl of mine is pretty enough to get married to somebody who's as rich as I am mm. like you know? <laughs> uh, what do you think of the Harmony Hut Josh oh my god I love their reaction to the fact that they're gonna have to watch uh, a bunch of Disney movies like Bernard from Santa Claus is like no he's, he's just a, a child, child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was going to say, though, so, Corey, technically, they were in ninja costumes for, like, three seconds. Does this count as a ninja movie? (laughs) They are referred to as ninjas by uh, the Grangers, like, in a brief line. I think they say, like, oh, our little ninjas here need an attitude adjustment or something like that. They're trying to escape because they've discovered that Debbie is engaged to, to fester. 
And at this point, they know who she is because Joel has a series of cards he collects that are called. <laughs> That's another another, I think, a foreshadowing moment that he's going to eventually fit in perfectly yeah. with this family. He's got this set of cards from a series called Schizos and Serial Killers. <laughs> he's like I'm missing Jack the Ripper in that Zodiac. Guy. Yeah, he tells the only two they're missing. <laughs> he's missing is Jack the Ripper in the Zodiac and they find Debbie in the set. And so they, they start freaking out and they're trying to escape camp to stop the wedding when they get caught in the ninja costumes. Now you're talking about props that you want from a movie, Steve. Right. I want those fucking cards. Absolutely. I love that yeah. set of cards. Oh my God. <laughs> they were actually made. They have a front and a back. No like, way. Oh yeah. Well, I mean in the movie, yeah. like they flip them over the and there's like the little description. It's like the old X-Men cards. <laughs> Man, that would have been cool to have. Oh, it would. I'd love it. What, what was the one Pugsley had? The the lady that like killed. Oh, Amy Fisher. Yeah. yeah, he's Amy like, "I'll trade you for Amy Fisher." <laughs> oh. oh God. I like in the Harmony Hut though, like when Joel, who's you, you've been calling Bernard, he gets tossed in. <laughs> he, he's like, "I just wanted to read," and he has like the Stephen Hawking book. Yeah, brief history of time. <laughs> yeah, he just wants to sit around and read physics. <laughs> <laughs> and then he sees the Michael Jackson poster. He freaks out. <laughs> and it triggers a flashback, I guess. <laughs> Do you think he met Michael? Is that the implication? That could be it, you know, or just generally scared of the uh, the puppet man. The threat of Michael? <laughs> the threat, the, the ominous existence of Michael that he could show up at any moment. <laughs> 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 One of the my favorite parts of the movie is when Wednesday fakes the smile coming out of the Harmony Hut. Yes. How painful it like clearly is for Wednesday to smile like that. Yeah. <laughs> she is in physical pain to do that. <laughs> it's so great. They did a good job <laughs> in this movie at like making sure she doesn't smile up until that point. Right. Because yes. there's times when she does something like kind of evil and you think she's going to smile, but she doesn't. She just opens her eyes big. <laughs> so like that's the replacement smile reaction that she gives for the camera. And it works really well. It does. Yeah. After that, she does smile a couple times sadistically, but that's the first one we see. I would call it more of a smirk than a smile from here on out. It's the cool half smile. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely not like a Colgate Crest commercial smile like it is coming out of the Harmony Hut. Right. I love the reaction of the blonde girl. She's like, she's scaring me. <laughs> so Fester has a bachelor party because he's going to get married. Steve, have you ever had a stripper jump out of a cake? No, not out of a cake. No? No, no, especially when you bake the cake first. Right, you got to yeah. make sure the cake is made and then they go in later. Yeah, you got to put them in. That's, that's, I mean, that might be why it's never happened That's a classic Lurch mistake. <laughs> yeah, was, so the implication is Lurch was uh, uh, like in charge of the entire cake operation. <laughs> and I guess he bungled that one. When Gomez realizes what happens, and his line delivery is perfect, but when perfect. Gomez realizes what happens, he goes, that poor girl. And, and <laughs> as, as funny as it is and as perfect as the delivery is, I don't think the line is very fitting of Gomez. I think he would think that that was funny. Well, right after he goes, well, say la vie. Right, yeah. <laughs> that poor girl, Lurch, was she in there before you baked? C'est la vie. 
it's uh, one of the many deaths we see in this movie. People die in this fucking movie. Yeah. Well, there are implications that Gomez has gotten off on several charges over the years. Acquitted. Acquitted. (laughs) Yeah. Like he used to kill women. (laughs) Yeah, he totally used to kill women. Him and uh, Morticia totally killed an entire cruise of people. On their honeymoon. On their honeymoon. That's so great. That's just how they get down, you know? That's how they get down. They just dabble in murder occasionally. (laughs) Do you remember our honeymoon? That glorious cruise. No calls. No care. No survivors. Uh, the kids do sneak away from camp for one night somehow, and they make it to the uh, the wedding. Fester and Debbie do get married, and it's like at the wedding when Debbie starts just really expressing her disdain for Fester. Like once it's locked in, she's like no longer playing. Like even at the wedding, right? She's just like, uh, yeah, ditto. Right. Hits them with the ghost line. They, they mention during that, that, that TV episode that she has a habit of killing her new husbands on their honeymoon. So she's, she's in a huge hurry just to get to the honeymoon. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she wants to kill him before he fucks. Right. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because she tries <laughs> oh, to before yeah. it happens, and then when he comes into the bedroom interested, she just tries almost everything to avoid it, and then eventually decides that sex is a weapon in and of itself. But, yeah. What do you think of the murder attempt, Steve? The murder attempt is pretty funny. She drops a, a, a boombox into the bathtub with him. The hottest boombox that 1993 could afford. Right. Oh, yeah. That thing has been on some shoulders. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, it, she thinks that she's succeeded because it blows the whole bathroom out, all the bulbs and everything. And then, But Fester just does his, his old light bulb in the mouth trick. She realized she she hasn't killed him. Somehow Fester is so well insulated. This does not kill him. (laughs) You can't kill the Adams. No, apparently not. No. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and this is like the position I've maintained since being a kid, they're not really killable. They're semi like undead beings. You're right. They're kind of human and they're kind of not. Like they're so far out there like that the rules of nature don't apply to them. You can't kill that fucking baby. I'd love to see a tie in where like Michael Myers is a member of that family. I like to see Michael Myers go after them and just get destroyed by them. Yeah, I was about to say, he gets wrecked by Wednesday. Dude, they could do three. They could do uh, him, Voorhees, and the Leatherface, and all of them fail. Yeah, you know? can't fuck with them. <laughs> oh god, now I just got like a flash of like the Casper gag where all, like the Dan Aykroyd's running out of the house. And oh yeah, Father <laughs> Father Guido. There are a lot of good references in Casper. You get a little Guido Sarducci in there too. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a like Michael Myers, Jason, Leatherface oh. running out of the house. Like I can't deal with them. <laughs> oh man, talking about uh, uh, that new Ghostbusters movie. The whole thing's gonna just gonna be throwback references to the original. It's like, hey Steve, you uh. remember? <laughs> oh God. But hey, do you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember? I'm going to see it. Maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll be better than the original. <laughs> I'm I'm just going to gloss right over that comment. I Look, I will concede. Remember when I said that about Dark Fate? <laughs> I, no, I made myself forget that you'd said that about Dark Fate. I, kept ta- I got Steve and Alan to go see Dark Fate, and I was like, it might be better than T2. 
I mean, look, look, I will give it this much room. It's possible it will be better than I'm thinking. I will give it that much leeway, but there's no way it's going to be. I think it's going to be like the first Jurassic World where they build the whole thing around throwbacks to the first one. I think we can all agree it's definitely going to be better than the the all-female reboot. Yeah, okay, yeah, there, there you go. It'll be better than that one. I hate that fucking movie. Yeah, absolutely. I, I fucking <laughs> right. disdain it. I, I did a podcast on it. You guys weren't there, but right. I explained how I hate it and why I hate it. And I also explained that it's not just because it's women. Yeah, like, no. <laughs> yeah, no. They could make a movie full, full of women characters like that. That's not what bothered me. It's, it's a cheap, shitty knockoff, poorly scripted, bad story. Women can be unfunny, too. Yeah, everyone can be unfunny, and they were in that movie. The thing is, like, if you say you hate that movie, people, like, raise an eyebrow yeah, at Immediately. You. It's like, oh, you just can't handle a movie that's all female leads. Or you can't handle a movie that's got a black woman in the lead. It's like, it's got nothing well, to do with all, that. Honestly, like, uh, if you're trying to, like, do the whole, like, all female female thing like ghostbusters isn't the vehicle no no like, exactly those they're not like macho men they're also, schlubs i don't understand why that same group of people isn't mad that it was an obvious act of pandering they just took something they could grab easy and said here let's do this but with women like <laughs> i i would want more originality than that i listened to the yeah. full podcast on it i have a lot of thoughts on it go check it out everybody yeah anyway Fester is forced to make some changes. And I put that in quotes because those were Debbie's exact words. What do you think of Fester's new look, Steve? It's so weird. They did such a good job with it. They 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 really did make it look like some kind of weird goth doll that was made for a small girl, <laughs> but but that her older sister put preppy clothes on. <laughs> it's really strange. It's got the wig and the blue baby blue sweater. The whole thing is it's perfect for the movie, but it's so strange. It's weird. Yeah, like uh, Liu Kang is very confused. He's like Fester, and Fester's like it's a new look. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, Fester can't see his family again, which uh, causes some problems for the Adams family. Oh, God, poor Gomez is just absolutely distraught over this. Hawaii is wonderful. I wish you were here, and I can never see you again. P.S. Debbie says hi. I don't understand. For weeks, not a word, and now this. Darling, come to bed. He can't be serious. Have I done something? Said something? Why does my brother despise me? He adores you. I'd do anything for him. At his request, I would rip out my eyes. At his command, I would crawl on my belly through hot coals and broken glass. Why wait? Has Festa gone mad? He, it's again a throwback to the first one, kind of, because he loses his shit in both movies. It's almost—it's very weird they sort of replay that part of the story in both films, too. But uh, I do like seeing Manic Gomez, though. It's true. It's pretty funny to see him like that. He's very good. And uh, and for some reason, the baby starts getting pubert, starts to get more normal while Fester's not around. He grows oh, like... Oh, God, that's a great scene when, they're <laughs> t- <laughs> when the granny is like tell- telling him, like, oh, no, he could get dimples. Yeah, we're like, talking dimples. like, not in this house, goddammit. <laughs> He's possessed. Warning signs. Surreal alterations in appearance and personality. Such alterations can become permanent. Permanent. Those golden curls. Those rosy cheeks. That smile. These terrifying changes are most often the result 
A troubled family life. Separations. Separations? You mean... First bingo! This kid knows that something's not right around here. Unless Vesta comes back, we're talking dimples. Not in this house. He could stay this way for years, forever. He could become a lawyer. I won't listen! An orthodontist. The master. President. Please, I beg you, take me. <laughs> we haven't talked much about her, but the granny is played by an aged up Carol Kane. Carol Kane, yeah. Simka. Who's great. I don't know. She is was, that, that, was that her name in Taxi? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Her taxi was called Simka. And she actually reprised that character in a cameo in Man on the Moon. Um, That's right. But because uh, they did the taxi filming and they brought all the actors from Taxi back, right? Yeah. Uh, I now I'm forgetting her name. The, she, I, another woman played Grandma on the original film. Carol Kane was fantastic, but I don't. That other woman whose name I'm now forgetting was a really famous theatrical actress and uh, had been involved in some really important theater. And uh, you mean in the original show? Um, no, no, no. The woman that played Grandma on the first movie. That that was not Carol Kane in the first movie. What? Yeah, it was this other woman whose name I'm blanking on now, and she also played a part. She played Al Pacino's mother in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh yeah, uh, Judith Molina. Molina, there you go. She also played uh, what's his name? Wally, a uh, uh, Polly Walnut's a uh, real biological mother in one episode of The Sopranos, and I don't know why she she uh, did not come back to do to do this one. She was really good. But yeah, anyway, Carol Kane was amazing also. Great casting. It could have been a scheduling conflict. You said they filmed these like back to back, right? Like a year apart. Not not even a full year. Yeah. Uh, Maybe she was busy. Yeah, it could have been. Could have been. There's something that I want to talk about in this movie, which is the whole reason I consider this a Thanksgiving movie. To me, this is the peak of the movie. I love this fucking shit. I have since I was a kid. It's amazing. And I'm talking, of course, about Gary's vision. Gary's vision. <laughs> Gary's vision, goddammit. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's this trite, whitewashed piece of complete shit. <laughs> like, just makes the the pilgrims out to be these, like, civilized saviors and the Indians to be these, these ignorant idiots. Oh, constantly, like, jab after jab uh, of, like, oh, we have shoes and last names. So? I am so... So glad we invited the Chippewas to join us for this holiday meal. Remember, these savages are our guests. We must not be surprised at any of their strange customs. After all, they have not had our advantages, such as fine schools, libraries full of books, shampoo. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, just like you, you scumbags are so lucky we showed up. To genocide you. Yeah, to genocide you. (laughs) Right? Like, fuck. It's funny because, Steve, when we were kids, that is kind of the way the relationship was taught. They were still teaching it that way. In elementary. It changed when I got in high school. I remember my parents saying it was even worse when they were kids. My parents were both born in 51. And when they were in elementary school, yeah, in the mid to late 50s and early 60s, they really were still being taught that the Native Americans had been done some kind of favor. And it was really crazy, but you're right. Even late '80s, early '90s, when we, when I was a kid, and you pretty much around the same time, 
there was still a little bit of that. They they they'd softened it at least in my classes. They'd softened it to the point the pilgrims were made out somewhat less to be saviors, and they were admitting the little bits that they hadn't always been nice. But they were still basically making it out that like the the, the natives were ultimately lucky that we came and built this place. I remember it being like a very like peaceful thing, like in this movie, like we came and like we shook their hands. Nice Thanksgiving. We had Thanksgiving. Right. And then, you know, they started shooting arrows at us later, those assholes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) After they'd shown us how to survive here in the first place. (laughs) Right. You know, (laughs) like. Well, uh, you can't even be a Native American in in a fucking child play because Bernard's parents are like 20 grand and he's Mr. (laughs) Woo-woo. Mr. Woo-woo. They're so fucking like Jewish mom about it. Stereotype oh, 20 yeah. grand and he's Mr. Woo Woo. 20 grand for camps. <laughs> How? I am Pocahontas, a Chippewa maiden. An Indian. Enough said. <laughs> and I am Running Bear, betrothed to Pocahontas. In the play. 20 grand for summer camp. He's Mr. Woo Woo. Like, what's the. Right? He's in a fucking play. He can't even. Right, you know, God damn you, people! No wonder he like totally like pulls their uh but their I, seats out from under him. But all the other waspy parents are way into it. They're loving it. They're smiling. They're oh. laughing at Gary's stupid jokes. They think this is wonderful. This is exactly what they wanted their kids to be doing. This Exa- yeah, they, like, exactly. Like, <laughs> and then like the reigns of Casimir starts playing, and oh, God, <laughs> Wednesday I wish. totally totally pulls a red wedding. Movie. I, mean, I was gonna say Wednesday absolutely could pull a red wedding at this play. Uh, that song's my jam. <laughs> I like when um. Gary asks Wednesday, because she's cast as Pocahontas, he's like, don't you want to help me realize my vision? Your vision is trite. Your work is puerile and underdramatized. You lack any sense of structure, character, or the Aristotelian unities. Or the Aristotelian (laughs) unities. Or the Aristotelian (laughs) unities. Like, Wednesday understands theater on the most academic level possible. (laughs) Right. You you are not living up to it, sir. Uh. (laughs) It reminds me of that old uh, cartoon that was on Adult Swim, Home Movies. Oh, I love that show. Fuck, I love that show. McGurk is such a great character. But John yeah. McGurk. <laughs> but do you remember when uh, Brandon goes to like film camp? Yes, absolutely. And he has like, the guy that's running it is so up his own ass. Right. He's like, he's been on actual movie sets. He was like the catering guy on Batman and Robin. Right. <laughs> and like Brandon shows him his movies and the guy just trashes it. And Brandon's like, maybe he just didn't get what I was going for. He's like, didn't get what I was going for. We get one of you every year. <laughs> I haven't seen that episode, but that sounds great. <laughs> but after Wednesday has her little change of heart, she does agree to be Pocahontas, right? Oh, her fake acting as Pocahontas is oh, it's so perfect. Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about this play itself? Oh, God. So Pugsley's dressed up as a turkey, as are all of the other, like, outcasts. The dark-haired kids. The, the dark-haired kids don't get any FaceTime in this play. Wednesday is playing the part of Pocahontas. It, like I said, her fake acting, I can't even describe it in words. It's, oh, it's so marvelous. She's a thespian. This kid can turn it on, man. Right. Yeah, she can Absolutely. act. Yeah. God. Why, you are as civilized as we, except we wear shoes and have last names. Welcome to our table, our new primitive friends. Thank you, Sarah Miller. You are the most beautiful person I've ever seen. 
Your hair is the color of the sun. Your skin is like fresh milk. And everyone loves you. Oh, dude. Uh, and then about halfway through, totally just starts going uh, fucking red wedding on the entire play. Uh, they burn the entire, like, fake set to the ground with all these, like, like burning arrows and shit. <laughs> they shoot at the camp counselors. <laughs> the whole solo speech written in for herself in her head about how if we let you people stay, you're just going to give us disease and push us off our land and murder <laughs> us. So, no, fuck yourselves. She's like, change of history starts now, bitch. Right? Wait. What? We cannot break bread with you. Huh? Becky, what's going on? Wednesday! You have taken the land which is rightfully ours. Years from now, my people will be forced to live in mobile homes, on reservations. Your people will wear cardigans and drink highballs. We will sell our bracelets by the roadside. You will play golf and enjoy hot hors d'oeuvres. My people will have pain and degradation. Your people will have stictions. The gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims, especially Sarah Miller. Gary, she's changing the words. And for all these reasons, I've decided to scalp you and burn your village to the ground. And so we spoke, and so we spoke, that Lord of Castamian. But now the rains we bore us home with no one there. To hear, yes, now the rains we pour is whole, and now the soul to hear. I like Joel too. He's like, I am chief running bear <laughs> right. in the play. <laughs> Look at the play. Then he just basically stands back and lets yeah. Wednesday do everything. <laughs> uh, I love when uh, they tie the the blonde girl to the, the the pole. They like start pouring the gas. Yeah, Amanda gets tied to the pole, and her parents don't know. Her father's so like just limp wristed <laughs> as a dad. He's just sitting there going, "Oh, excuse me, excuse me." Yeah. <laughs> well, like they yeah they cause chaos. They start setting fucking the set on fire. They're like throwing pies at people. It gets a little like hook-ish when they have like the contraptions oh, on their yeah. back and the zip line. Totally right. But like I can yeah. forgive like some of the stupidity of it because it culminates with them murdering everyone. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. It does. Yeah. They just wreck this play Somehow up. the blonde girl gets away. She does. And you only know that because you see her in a plane for a quick moment later. Right. And I never like really put that together. In my head, I thought they just killed her. Because they set this bitch on fire. Well, I'm torn on whether or not they should have even had that moment. Like, should they have just cut it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a cute gag, but maybe, like, have the seat empty. Yeah, just just the parents. Or or have her be on the plane but covered in body bandages. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there we go. Good. Or, yeah, like a body cast or something, yeah. But, yeah, that I mean, that's just a great moment to me. When I think of Thanksgiving movies, I think of this movie because of that. I fucking love the whole thing. Like, like I said before, Wednesday Adams, a fucking counterculture icon. I just love it, you know? She ain't, she ain't having this yuppie shit. No, she's not doing it. <laughs> Lindsay Ellis, formerly known as the Nostalgia Chick, said it best. She said that 
Christina Ricci was genetically engineered in a lab for the express purpose of portraying Wednesday Adams. <laughs> right? And I love that quote. It stuck with me forever. Dude, she, to the point where, okay, she she got discovered when she was, I think, eight in a school play by a local theater critic. And within like two years of that, she'd been on SNL and then done the first, or maybe it was three years, whatever. She, she was in Mermaids. In, yeah, she, she did the SNL sketches, then Mermaids, then the first Adams Family. But she told a story at one point that it was a Christmas play at her school. She had not originally been cast in the lead. She was one of like the stand-ins or the the whatever. And she was so competitive. She wanted the lead in the part so badly. She kept making fun of the little boy who'd gotten the part, even though she didn't dislike him, purposefully to get him to hit her. And when he finally did it, she told on him and got him kicked out of the play so that she could take the lead part. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a real Christina Ricci movie. She did that in real life. And, and that little boy grew up to be Tom Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was what he was talking about when he, you know, the whole rant about how I grew up in darkness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we got the play murder. <laughs> but meanwhile, Debbie is planning a murder of her own. Isn't she, Josh? Yeah, so she sets up this bomb in this, like, like giant gift box and gives it to Fester, says she's got to run up the street, and almost instantly Fester figures out what it is. Angel, I'm going out for just a minute. I forgot the champagne. A three-week anniversary. I'll go. No, no. You're working hard enough. I'll just put your present on the table. Don't peek. Oh, please, please. What is it? Is it string? You never know. Ah, is it a dog toy? Just you wait. It's a bomb. What? Oh, no. Wait for my birthday. <laughs> but he's into it. He likes that. Yeah, for him, a bomb's a present. Yeah, yeah that's fun. Exactly. Right? If you can't die, like that, like if people in the Adams family can't, a bomb would be fun. Yes, right? it's <laughs> exciting. <laughs> and Debbie, Debbie runs off. So she tells him she's got to run an errand. She goes to a bar. She's hanging out with a bunch of Navy sailors singing YMCA, and one of them's Tony Shalhoub. I was about to say, there's nothing more macho man than fucking Tony Shalhoub. Seeing a, a song by a famously gay group. <laughs> but yeah. Well, apparently, like, that is a big band with the Navy. Because I, I, I used to play an MMO. And, of course, a ton of people in the military are gamers. Right. I'm sure you guys know that if you've played online games. Right. I asked this dude who was the leader of our guild. He was in the Navy. And I said, like, is YMCA actually a thing in the Navy? And he's like, yes, it is actually. That's like so weird. Like, people in the Navy bump YMCA. Fair <laughs> enough. What the fuck? But yeah, Debbie gets back. She's she you know she wants to play like the widowed woman whose husband died tragically in an explosion that no one can explain, <laughs> even though it probably would be revealed to be sabotage when it was investigated. But that's fine. The house blows up, and Fester just casually, as you like, walks out of it. Like that doesn't kill him. I know, and he's got the food with him that he's been making. He yeah, wants to know if she wants dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Unfucking phase. I love it, and I like how like. The bomb doesn't work, so she's like, fuck this, and she just pulls out the chopper. She pulls out a dope fucking Desert Eagle. Yeah, she pulls out a fucking Desert Eagle .50. This <laughs> big-ass fucking gun. I love it. It's like chrome. It's like so gangstered out, this gun she has. It's like such... 
such a weird thing to see her holding as like the blonde, big titted woman of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think of uh, of her? By the way, Joan Cusack is this the best she's ever looked in a movie? Yeah, I mean, I I can't recall, and I like her, I really do, but I can't recall any other role where I thought about her as really being attractive at all. Yeah, I know? can't either. But yeah, yeah, she might be the most attractive here. She usually plays more mousy characters. Toy Story 2? Yeah. Yeah, But they they usually intentionally have her sort of play up the mousiness, especially her younger roles in the 80s, like in 16 Candles where she's got the headgear on. Oh, that was funny. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. You know, so she she doesn't tend to play like sexy types. Right before this, I think she was in Toys. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh no no! no. <laughs> what is that with toys? Another know. podcast me and Steve have. That's a that's that was a fun one. It was a fun one. I like yeah. that movie. True Christmas movie, right there. Yeah, it is. That really is a Christmas film. So back at the Adams house, Gomez is having his nervous breakdown, uh, but Fester and the kids kind of arrive home at the same time, right, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the kids get home, trying to figure out what's going on, save Fester. Fester has been saved by Thing, who rammed Debbie with her car. So, so Thing, the, the hand, the floating hand can drive. Yeah, with, this, this makes no sense. But fine, you know, it's just part and parcel for the film. And he, yeah. yeah. He manages to drive Debbie's car into her and then gets Fester home in it. So they all arrive back at the same time, and, and Debbie is, who has regained consciousness, then hot on their trails trying to uh, stop this whole thing from happening. And, uh... She was driving a Lincoln Town car for most of the movie, and she trades off in this last scene. She trades off for a Mercedes SL Roadster. That's what I would have been driving the whole time. It's like four times the price of the Lincoln she'd been driving before. Well, she's got that money now. It's true. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Debbie shows up to kind of ruin the family reunion. It's a really good shot of her appearing, actually, like when she walks in the door, low angle camera. Yeah. She pumps a shotgun. Her <laughs> hair and makeup are completely different than they were in the last time we saw her in the scene right. prior. It's a good moment, don't you think, Josh? Oh, I, I was going to say, th- this climax is like my favorite part of the movie. When she takes the whole family hostage, puts them in the electric chairs. It's so <laughs> fucking great. <laughs> Go on, why don't you tell us about it? Like, she's prepared a slideshow. She's so lucky to have found the only house where they've got four or five electric chairs just hanging around. <laughs> yes, and they would. <laughs> they, they would, would. <laughs> and it makes sense. God damn it, I love this scene. Uh, <laughs> God damn, does she have a slideshow ready for everybody? And she walks them through her motive for no reason, but it's fine because it's fucking fantastic. The Meanwhile, the granny is just like... Uh, like fake empathizing with her like, I think she truly is sympathizing with her <laughs> it's weird are you really there she's like but what about Debbie <laughs> what about Debbie cause like well Debbie is going through her history and she's right. talking about when she was a kid she like wanted the ballerina Barbie but she got a different she kind of Barbie Malibu Barbie instead and then, that like, wasn't me and Gomez and, and Morticia are like Malibu Barbie the horror like, the horror they, the horror yes. <laughs> Like, they understand. They're like, fuck that. She kills her parents. What else has she done, Josh? Uh, She killed her first husband, the heart surgeon. No new Mercedes this year, Debbie. Oh, no, that was... She killed the the senator. senator. Yeah, what did she kill the the first husband over? Uh, Just not enough time with her. The Pope is sick. 
So oh yeah, so the Pope's got a cold, Debbie. Yeah, so she's got like a hatchet and like he's like a heart surgeon and the personal doctor of the Pope. Oh, right? what? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But the no. granny's like a ah, hatchet or uh, an axe or whatever. She's like got nostalgic, warm memories. It's so fantastic. That she kills the senator because you know we got to set an example. So no new Mercedes. Fuck that. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't enjoy hurting anybody. I don't like guns or bombs or electric chairs. But sometimes people just won't listen, and so I have to use persuasion. And besides, my parents, Sharon and Dave, generous, doting. Or were they? All I ever wanted was a ballerina Barbie in her pretty pink tutu. My birthday. I was ten, and you know what they got me? Malibu Barbie. Malibu Barbie. The nightmare. The nerve. That's not what I wanted. That's not who I was. I was a ballerina. Graceful, delicate. They had to go. She has them all in these electric chairs, and there's kind of a gag with that because her arms are pinned down. And she's like, "You guys let me into your house, but did any of you truly love me?" And Gomez goes, "Hands," and like no one can raise their hand. So like, you do hear like faint struggling. So like, I feel like a few of them genuinely were going to raise their hand, but they yeah. couldn't. I think Fester was at least. Yeah. Another, oh, oh god, there's just so many things to unpack in this climax. There's the baby at this point starts to get out of his crib and begins to set off this domino effect, chain reaction, Rube Goldberg type, <laughs> I don't even know, domino effect basically of how they're eventually going to get out. Yes, yeah, Steve, what's what is this? How is this baby? I can't even remember every movement of it. He's crawling around the house, and at one point he ends up on things, roller skate sliding around, he bumps into a shelf that knocks a bowling ball down, and the bowling ball ends up causing a chain effect. I mean, Josh might remember the steps better than I do, but it, it ends with the bowling ball, like, smashing through the room, and Pubert ends up in the attic with them, and just as Debbie's trying to set off these electric chairs... He, like, rewires it, and it shocks her instead. I get the idea this baby knows what he's doing. Yeah, it kind of thinks, seems like he's doing it on purpose. Yeah, he's an Adams, <laughs> after all. There is a it's great true. moment where, right before uh, she goes to pull the switch, she's like, uh, you know, wish me luck. And I think they're all genuinely like, good luck. <laughs> like, everybody unanimously all say good luck together. Yeah, I think they, like... They're kind of okay with this. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> they get to go out as a family. They're fine. One, like, I think they kind of are aware, like, they might not die. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But even if they do, they're like, this is kind of cool. Like, we do this anyway. Yeah. I got a feeling this is probably, like, their Saturday night. Wednesday had Pugsley in an electric chair at one point earlier in the film. I th- or maybe the first movie. I thought it was this one where Morticia... Maybe it was the first movie they were going to the auction. Morticia's like, we're late, and Wednesday's like, I just want to shock him once before we go. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. And Fester can clearly survive being electrocuted anyway, so... Another great uh, attention to details when Debbie is turned into, like, a comedic pile of ash. Her shoes and credit cards remain intact. Yes. <laughs> Uh, 
Very nice. <laughs> but they, they eventually basically bury her with Adam's honors. They put her in the family graveyard, and she she was a psychopath just like them. Yeah. Fits. How does the movie wrap up after that, Steve? Um, the movie ends with uh, sort of her little funeral. Wednesday has got Joel there visiting, and they're out looking at Debbie's grave. Uh, Joel considers her a sad person and makes a nice comment about her. You know, we're sorry that you suffered so much in life. Maybe you'll be happier in death. And he and Wednesday are having a conversation. Wednesday says that if she were going to kill her husband, she'd frighten him to death. And Joel's like, oh, no, you wouldn't. But then uh, Wednesday clearly has Thing planted in the grave, and Thing comes popping out of the dirt and grabs Joel and scares the living hell out of him. It's a very Carrie moment. Right? And then sort of the last thing we see is, uh, I cannot remember the character's name, the woman who from the first film who was originally there to help steal their money, I think, but she's married to Cousin It now, and she comes, or yeah, yeah, Cousin It, and she comes in with him and introduces their new nanny, Dementia. (laughs) <laughs> who is like j- basically a female version of Fester, and obviously Fester's in love again. I love the moment where she's like, it means insanity. Insanity, yeah, and he's like, I'm Fester, it means to rot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we sort of end on that note, really. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of tropish of the time to it have was. like the, the female version of a weird oddball character. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I remember in. Wayne's World 2. Wayne's World 2. You got yeah. the, the Lady Garth. Right? Yeah. yeah. God, that one. Wayne's World 2 was funny up until like the last third. It's really the last act of that movie where it's like, well, you guys didn't. It was, no. The problem, I think, with movies like Wayne's World is like, I don't know if people are going to get those references anymore. No. In fact, I was reading an article recently about the show The Critic, which is one of my absolute favorites ever. It was brilliant. It was really well written. But the, the point of the article was to say that all of the references in that show, as good and as funny as they were, and they were, were all so heavily rooted in the politics and the celebrities of that specific time that it, you you can't enjoy it now. You can't enjoy that show now unless you're aware of who they're referencing. And anyone under about 30 who isn't really up to date on early 90s pop culture is just not not at all going to get it. Right. Like – who knows what Calgon is? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, even I remember having to ask my mother what, you know, what's Calgon when I was, when I first saw the movie, I was, must've been 11 or so. And she was explaining his laundry detergent. <laughs> yeah. That was their advertising <laughs> campaign, you know? Or like, do you remember at the end of Wayne's world too, with like the guys throwing trash at the feet of the native American? Yeah. And a single tear. Rolls single down tear. His- and like the ending of the movie where he disrupts the wedding is a play on the film, The Graduate. But if you've never seen The Graduate, you wouldn't know that. Like, well, yeah. there's exactly. that entire scene where they're talking about sponsors and it's nothing but 90s and like 80s and 70s yeah. pop culture references, you know, like little yellow different. Oh, yeah. For the, for the whatever, the, the headache drug. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because that ad campaign doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> right. And But yeah. So do you guys have any final thoughts on the Adams Family Values before we do ratings? Steve? I do have one, one I think, kind of funny one. They chose the name Adams Family Values for this movie partly as a tongue-in-cheek reference. Um, when George Bush Sr. was president, in the late 80s and very early 90s, his vice president was Dan Quayle. And in 1992, when Bush and Quayle were running again against Bill Clinton and uh, Al Gore, 
the uh, Los Angeles riots had just recently happened. And Dan Quayle got on TV and made this really, really horrifically, horrendously stupid fucking speech where he insisted that the riots had come about as the result of a breakdown in family values. That's how we phrased it in the speech. So they they chose the name Family Values for this film as a sort of fuck you reference to Dan Quayle because it was so stupid. So a completely like a tone deaf kind of speech. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Honor completely ignoring that that riot had really happened because of the 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 circumstance and, and racial tensions and wrong stuff that had happened. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah. Systemic problems inherent to our country. Right. That are still problems right now. What do you mean? It's perfect now. Oh, yeah. Things are so much better. <laughs> the problem is uh. not enough people go to Camp Chippewa. Yeah, exactly. For a second, I thought you were going to say not enough people go to church. <laughs> no. You scared? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah. You scared <laughs> motherfucker go to church. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into ratings. Josh, on any rating scale you want, what are you going to give Adam's Family Values? I'm going to give this nine fessers with a light bulb in his mouth out of ten. Uh, this movie's absolutely fucking wonderful. Uh, it's a visual gag a minute. Uh, you can pause the movie at any certain point and just point out different things. It's firing on all cylinders. It's completely energetic. The cast is perfect. The dialogue is spot on. I, I love it. I may go 10. Who f- Fuck it. I'll go 10. I love this movie. Wow. Nice. I'm going to go next. I'm going to give this 8.5 out of 10 Cousin It's. <laughs> I do like this movie a lot. I always have. I've always considered it the superior of the Addams Family movies because there's a, a really good subplot with the kids. Yes. Right? Which uh, I think is a lot of fun and probably the most interesting part of the movie. Although the main plot is also good. This movie has a lot going for it. It looks awesome. There's a lot of small touches, amazing set design. It's perfectly cast. The acting is good. It's something like unique and weird about it. Like it was one of those movies where it was kind of like a little weird to like these movies. And it was a little weird to like Tim Burton movies. And I liked being in that camp when I was a little kid, but I still like it now. I think it holds up greatly, maybe more so than some of its contemporaries. I think it's uh, I think it's the best example of the kind of movie we talked about earlier on this podcast, of old TV shows getting remade with the sentiment of the 90s. I think this excels the most at that. What do you think, Steve? Well, I numerically, you stole my rating. I'm going to go with an eight and a half also, but I'm going to go with eight and a half uh, dismembered hands out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) I, I actually slightly prefer the original overall. But it's not by very much. And I like both films quite a lot. This movie is, I agree with you, it's perfectly cast. The set design is spot on. The costuming was great. Um, Every single person played their character in exactly the right way. The movie moves along well. It doesn't feel either particularly too long or too short. It's engaging, entertaining in all the right ways. and, And not one of those obvious money grab sequels in the sense that it's clear that somebody involved actually put some thought into what they were going to do with this movie it's a i think a a little a little bit thinner in terms of narrative development than the first one which is part of the reason i like the first one a little better but but definitely not enough to make me detract any significant pointage from it so yeah an enjoyable experience movie i've seen many times before enjoyed many times before and will continue to enjoy into the future 
I hope you watch it every Thanksgiving, Steve. Yeah, I'm sure between now and next year, this time, I'll have watched it at least once again. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> Review dude, Josh. Thank you for being a guest on this podcast. I would like you to explain to the audience where people can see your work, sir. All right. You can go to Review Inc. or type Review D-O-O-D into your search bar. Uh, And I just make fun of movies. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about the most recent one you did, which is an episode I really liked. Uh, Satan's Little Helper. Satan's Little Helper. Steve, are you familiar with this one? I, this one I actually don't know. Okay, uh, you're not missing out on much. <laughs> full disclosure, it's it's a little tongue in cheek. It's like a dark comedy, but it it's t- fucking bad. Oh God, Jesus Christ! I'm having flashbacks <laughs> of the fucking kid in that movie. <laughs> How about that dude in the mask though? Giving that thumbs up pose. Oh God, Key yeah. Moment. Yeah, there's there's a couple like actual genuine like visual things I I, I really enjoy. That actor in the the Satan costume is fucking wonderful. He does some some really good uh, like pantomiming. Awesome. If you, the listeners, want to write in, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram, Big Dumb Movie Podcast. The best thing you can do for this podcast is give us a five-star rating and written review on Apple Podcasts because that will boost our show so that more people can listen. And if more people listen, I will be more encouraged to put out more episodes. So think about that. Uh, featuring me. Featuring Steve. <laughs> Everyone Potentially. Wants. Depending on sometimes. scheduling. Yeah. Right. Intermittently. Thank you, Steve, though, for being here Thank for this you. podcast. Thank you, Josh, for joining me. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun. I look forward to our next podcast together. That's all we got this time. Thank you very much for listening. Play us out, Jackson.
the Ultraman stuff at a really young age because I got exposed to it kind of accidentally when I was like six or seven. Was it Mike Closer? Oh, yeah. And uh, I think that became my stand-in for wrestling. Instead of watching the wrestlers throw each other around, I was like, I'm going to watch Godzilla throw this giant beetle-looking thing through through fake-looking buildings. And it was just as ridiculous. It was just a different kind of ridiculous. Some people get into both, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I know what you mean. My brother was into both. Right. He was big into that. I swear to God, the Godzilla tapes he had... You would like find him right because you remember how the movie selection at Best Buy used to be? Oh, how yeah. fucking vast. <laughs> right. He would go there and he would just find like one dollar VHS tapes of Godzilla and they'd be the shittiest fucking movies. Toho licensed out the character a lot and they made a lot of like side movies that were really aimed at kids. And yeah. it was really strange the Godzilla Pantheon. These some of them even as an eight or nine year old, I was like, I don't like this one. <laughs> I mean, most famous for me, and one that we watched because it was funny even then, is uh, Godzilla's Revenge. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is just reused Godzilla <laughs> fight footage with some new footage with the, the little Godzilla. Right, God, Godzuki. And yeah. he, he's he's dubbed so fucking stupidly. Godzilla God- says, I should learn to fight my own battle. Right. <laughs> Godzuki's presence was always an immediate indicator that that was not going to be one of the, the more, like, I mean, as, as much as any of them can be good, you know, that was not going to be one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Godzuki, you little bitch. Right. I think partly because it was the era I was growing up in, but I also found that I've always been partial to the ones made during like the from the mid '80s into the early 2000s, tend to be my most favorite ones. Not that the original is not a classic, but there are some good ones. Yeah, um, there's two Godzilla versus Mothra's that I've seen. Yeah, there might be more than that that exist. Right. But my brother had two. Right, and one of them was good. Yeah, one of them was pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. It was like legitimately. I was like, this is like pretty dope. I can see like why someone would get into this. Right, but there's so much trash. There is. There's a lot of trash. Absolutely. <laughs> like. I think it's hard to balance the – they still have a problem with this. The story of the monsters that you want to see. Yeah. But there also has to be a plot. Yeah. Yeah. I And and they, they've they tried a little bit with some of the newer Godzilla movies. Like they, they haven't been fantastic. My favorite one so far has been the, the King of the Monsters remake. That's my favorite too. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and even then, I feel like they – the Ghidorah character model was cool, but I think I feel like they miffed it with that character. They kind of stuffed it in all of a sudden toward the end. It's like, oh, by the way, also this character was an alien and it's been here for a while and blah, blah, blah. And then it was gone. It's like you guys could have built a whole movie around Ghidorah, they, which they did in the past. Yeah, I'm just glad that like they they used him. Like, mm-hmm. right? I was like, don't do like whatever they were doing in the first Godzilla movie. Like, <laughs> right. let, let, what we want to see is Godzilla versus and then monster that we know. Yeah. And there's like... I think four, like a layman like myself, would be able to identify. Right. And I think they've used them all now, except for like maybe Rodan. But Rodan's yeah. separate, right? Rodan sort of um, sort of is. The one that was really separate was uh, Gamera. Gamera oh, got you're his right. own movies. You're right. yeah. no, Rodan is, can, is one of them. Yeah. yeah Gamera is. Yeah. <laughs> Gamera is ridiculous, by the way. Right? Gamera looks insane. I mean, that's part of the fun of it, I think, is the ridiculousness level of some of it. I figure if if this is the kind of movie you're going to make, you may as well – there's a limit, but you may as well embrace it up to a point, you know? You ever see that old <laughs> season one South Park episode where they parodied that? <laughs> yeah. I, re- I haven't seen it in years, but I remember the yeah, episode. I thought it was really funny. It was, it was Gamera was – um. Leonard Malton <laughs> <laughs> and Mothra was Robert Smith of The Cure. 
I'd forgotten that part. Absolutely. And then um, Barbara Streisand was Mecha Godzilla. Oh, that I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was great. It's funny because like that that was old season of South Parks. So I I think they don't really hold up because no. they're kind of like they're testing the waters. They're kind of filling things out. But right. Some moments like that are, are pretty good. Yeah, there were certain things they they did nail for sure. But yeah, I find I find that's true with a lot of shows for me. Oftentimes, especially the ones that have been on for years, or some of the real early ones don't hold up for me. Like I'm not I'm not particularly fond of the direction they've gone with The Simpsons over the years, but. Uh, even now, I find like the first two seasons are the hardest for me to watch. I think like like three through ten are probably my favorites. I think yeah, it, it can be that way with some of these shows that have been going on for a long time. The, the early Family Guys, I'm not interested in at all anymore. Oh, no. And I'm I'm still a huge fan of that show, but like anything pre cancellation, I just find I don't I don't really enjoy it. I kind of get annoyed by people that are like. Family Guy sucks now because, like, every time I see it, it's pretty good. Like, yeah, I, I've had that. Argument it's as good so- as it ever has been. I mean, it's yeah. not. It's not like the perfect show, but no. it's like pretty funny. It's like you know, you chuckle. Right? No, I agree with you. I have the discussion with people, and they're like, "Oh, it's not as good as it was." And I'm like, in my opinion, it's it's probably roughly as good. I might right. be able to pick out one season that I think had the most condensed number of really good episodes, but overall, yeah. I, American Dad too. There are always whiffs, you know. There are some episodes in any given season. I'm like, ah, this one wasn't so good. But overall, absolutely. Yeah. You ever watch Orville? No, no, not really. I don't. I don't have any necessarily negative pre-impression of it. But it just, it just sort of seemed like another one of those shows they've done before. So I didn't really. It's very much like a show they've done before. It's Star <laughs> Trek: The Next Generation. That's kind of what I thought. It's seriously like almost the same show, right? Which is cool because I love that show. <laughs> I do love TNG. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, it's a it has like a slightly more comedy than TNG, but not a lot more. See, but that's another one. Riker before the beard is just unwatchable. I can't I can't look at Jonathan Frakes yeah. without the beard. No, it's like good TNG. <laughs> right. It's like season three to five right. TNG. Yeah. Uh. Oh, I mean, God, and that that and I love it. I'm not talking shit, but that show has just got such a like. It's not just early nineties. It's just it's like an like an early nineties almost B level. Like we had just enough money to get to here type show in, in the real early seasons. Well that's as bad as effects as I can possibly watch. Right. When it comes to sci fi <laughs> stuff, I it's, I can't really get into like really no. old sci fi stuff. Star Wars is an exception. Exception. Yeah. Because they're exceptional at effects. But right. God. Oh my God! Speaking, I'm sorry to derail it, but just for a second, just for a second, I, 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 I mean, I occasionally, multiple times a year, just have to rewatch portions of the OT films, and I was doing uh, Jedi recently, and there's that one shot at the beginning. You know, it opens with the the two officers and Vader on the little shuttle ship heading to the the Death Star, which is under construction, and there's that moment right at the beginning. The Emperor. Yeah, with the no, no. Before the emperor gets there, before, uh, oh, okay. when when Vader warns them, Vader the emperor shows not as, up and he's yeah. talking shit and he's like, "This is all you motherfuckers have done, right? There's no plumbing, there's no <laughs> right? electricals to shit." <laughs> and there's like there's like ten seconds, roughly, give or take, where his shuttle is coming in, and it's an exterior shot of the like the dock, and it's kind of shadowy and partly lit because the light's coming out from the inner portion of the dock. I, I I could show you the sequence. It's during the first like five minutes of the movie. It, it's mostly practicals with a little bit of matte, and it's just – it is still one of the most beautiful effect shots in the history of ever. Every time I see it, I go, fuck, 
that looks so cool. Like, God damn it. Why yeah. can't they do more of that all the time forever? Right? I love it, man. It's so good. It's so good. And there's a, is that on one of my laser discs? I actually have mm-hmm. to test audio. Oh, so God. give me one sec. Yeah. I got to stop this track. <laughs> this is supposed to be an audio test and I haven't even looked at it yet.